0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 3rd of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up...
1: There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment or anything similar. Any more than the EU should be obliged to accept UK.
0: The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson sets out his vision for the future relationship between the UK and the EU. My guests Isabel Hilton and Tessa Shischkiewicz will talk about that and also Beijing's accusations of the US spreading panic over coronavirus and how Austria is commemorating Brexit. Plus, a little later, we find out why Bernie Sanders is, historically speaking, the most unexpected frontrunner in the democratic race for US president.
1: Challenging Hillary Clinton in 2016, Sanders proved startlingly popular with primary voters a fraction of his age. But is the burn still felt?
0: I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to the programme. I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, who's editor of China Dialogue, and Tessa Shishkowitz, correspondent for Profil magazine. Let's begin with China, which has accused Washington of scaremongering over the coronavirus. Foreigners who've been in China over the last two weeks are to be banned from the US. Meanwhile, Hong Kong is to close 10 out of 13 land and sea border crossings with mainland China in an attempt to stop the spread of the illness. So, plenty of quick movements and quick thinking by many countries. But, Isabel, the Chinese are claiming that the
2: US is scaremongering. Are they right? Well, it's certainly true that this fits a pattern of US behavior vis-a-vis Chinese citizens, which has been growing in other sectors. For example, there have been a lot of stories about US, about Chinese academics in US universities being investigated by the FBI for possible industrial espionage. There's been a, a general growing suspicion, which looks very unpleasant. On the other hand, uh, it seems reasonable to take precautions. And if you're looking at at scares, the extreme measures taken by the Chinese government are, are pretty alarming and probably quite ineffective. And even within China, we're seeing actions taken against people from hubei and from wuhan in other parts of china which are actually far more unpleasant i mean there's stuff circulating on social media which which includes you know people stealing up an apartment in in you know which contained people from hubei because they didn't want the rest of the block having any interaction so you know this thing is doing very odd Things to social consciousness and to people's behavior.
0: There are lots of countries joining in with the United States, aren't there, Tessa? I mean, we have the United States, Australia and Singapore who are all denying entry to foreign visitors who've recently been to China. Um, foreigners who visited Hubei province, you're not allowed into Japan or South Korea. Egypt, Finland, Indonesia, the United, States, the United Kingdom and Italy are all suspending flights to, to, to mainland China. It seems that there is a concerted effort by the world but in a rather piecemeal fashion, if that makes sense at all, that everyone's trying to do something, but everyone's making it up as they go along.
3: Well, people tend to be scared of diseases that spread around the globe. That's... human instinct i think also and it's quite difficult for governments to find anything useful to do against it if you don't even know how it's being transmitted and if you don't have any vaccines against it because nobody's immune so far to the virus itself so i think that most of this is um, just trying to do something useful without having actually an idea what to do and most of the people who have been flown out of wuhan and then are being checked and they either don't have the virus or they have a mild case. This is really dangerous for older people, for weak people, for people with open wounds and, and that should be sort of protected maybe. But the general public is not really uh, under a death sentence now with this coronavirus. Um, just looking, um,
0: Isabel, at the the fact that China is now suffering economically quite severely. I mean, its its main share index has fallen sharply Um straight back after the, the the lunar New Year break, when basically people should be getting back to business and business should be going up, up, up. The exact opposite is happening. Now, when China comes out and says, the United States, you're scaremongering, is it scaremongering because it is genuinely worried about the spread of a virus or saying that the United States is overestimating the spread of a virus? Or is it all too aware of the fact that it
2: has to mitigate the financial damage it's suffering? It, it's certainly worried about the financial damage. The, the Chinese didn't want the, the the WHO to declare this a, a global uh, health emergency, partly because of reputation, partly because of all the complications that then set in. But of course, China itself it started these complications, you know, failing to contain the virus when you could contain it in the first three weeks to a month from, from its appearance, and then quarantining you know, 30 million people. At what point is it, Regarded as safe to lift that quarantine at the moment, all the cases are are, are multiplying in inside and beyond that quarantine. So they've they've imposed a a, a quarantine and a movement ban and shut down the economy. But it's not clear to me what victory looks like at this point. You know, when do we say, well, that worked, you can all go back to work. And that's, I think, a problem that they've created for themselves. And that has enormous implications for the domestic uh, and indeed the the, the global economy.
0: And it does um, make us wonder, um, Tessa. I mean, you're talking about the idea that this is a global virus and it is human nature to protect yourself for it. But at what point another nation says, okay, that's absolutely fine. Or the, the nations which so far have not imposed enormous entry, entry bans will, will be pressured to actually follow
3: suit. Well, we will also see how this, um, the spread of the virus uh, develops. You know, if there are like millions of cases, then people will get complete panic attacks and seal the borders to everything. But that's not what we have to expect. And, you know, if you think that in the UK, I think yearly 13,000, up to 13,000 people die of influenza, of the normal flu, so to speak here. These things happen and we have to, you know, keep calm and look at what the actual situation is. If this virus is spreading in ways that we really cannot control, then there will be tougher uh, measures. But this whole thing with wearing uh, face masks that are not actually protecting you from getting this virus, but only from spreading it, and if you don't have it, it doesn't make any sense. And all these kind of things where people overreact now and it's it's but just problematic we have to think
2: about what will happen as as i'm sure it will happen that the virus spreads to much less uh, countries which are poor and with much less effective public health services pakistan for example which has a huge amount of 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 coming and going with china um and then what do you do do you ban people who are traveling from pakistan i mean the problem with travel bans is that if this is a global pandemic and it's spreading quite rapidly around the, the, the globe logically you should start imposing a ban on travel from those countries too. I can't see that's going to work.
0: Well, let's have a look very briefly at at Hong Kong. I mean, in the last couple of hours, um, Carrie Lam has said that the cross-border points, 10 out of 13 are going to be closed. And it is partially, apparently, in response to the fact that doctors and nurses have said, if you don't do this, we are going on strike. And again, Carrie
2: Lam under huge amounts of pressure from both sides. Well, again, this plays into an, an existing narrative in Hong Kong. One, that in 2003, a lot of people died in Hong Kong because of SARS, and two, because If there is anything more unpopular than Carrie Lam in Hong Kong at the moment, it's the government in Beijing. So, you know, it plays into the the sense of grievance and frustration and rage in Hong Kong, which is a political situation that we've been looking at for months. Um, And you add something like this in. And and of course, you know, she's under pressure. If If it were to take off in Hong Kong, it would be very bad news.
0: Isabel Hilton and Tessa Shishkovitz there. Thank you both. We'll be back with you in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other news stories we've been following today.
4: Thanks, Emma. Iran is no longer sharing evidence from the investigation into the Ukraine airliner crash with Kiev after audio from the investigation was leaked by the local media. The audio file was given to Ukrainian experts as part of the Joint Investigative Team's examination of the crash. China has accused the United States of causing panic in its response to the coronavirus. It follows the US decision to declare a public health emergency and deny entry to foreign nationals who have visited China in the past two weeks. There are more than 17,000 confirmed cases of the virus in China, and almost 400 people have died. And the European Union and Britain have clashed over a post-Brexit trade deal, with London and Brussels setting out different visions of a future relationship. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says there is no need for the UK to follow Brussels' rules. However, the EU warns that the UK may have to sign up to its rules to ensure fair competition. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Emma.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and joining me in the studio are Isabel Hilton and Tessa Shishkovitz. Well, the bottles have barely been sent to the recycling and the party poppers only just swept up following the celebrations by Brexiteers at the United Kingdom's departure from the EU on Friday night. And the British Prime Minister has wasted no time going on the attack today when it comes to the UK's future relationship with Brussels. Boris Johnson's already revived the threat of no deal and has promised Britain won't accept any EU rules on social protection and the environment. Tessa, you watched this speech. Mr Johnson had an awful lot to say, didn't he?
3: Well, it's quite amazing to me that he's um, still trying to just stay in a quite kind of fluffy, superficial way in talking about what these negotiations actually mean. Because this is a very, very technical period that uh, these negotiations are entering now between the uk and the eu and we have seen in the last three years since uh, the withdrawal deal was um, negotiated that the european commission is a very bureaucratic technical um, institution and it has to because it's the the single market and the trade uh, rules are very very sort of detailed technical things. So if Boris Johnson continues now to tell people that oh, everything will be fine, we will just not follow EU rules, he will not have a trade deal by the end of the year.
0: Now, this speech revived
3: the threat of no deal. What what would lead us to believe that? Well, we have to understand that this is the opening negotiation position now. The same thing happened this morning in Brussels with Michel Barnier bringing out the rule books and saying like we want only a comprehensive trade deal with a level playing field in the long term. So Boris Johnson does here his th- spiel that goes to his gallery for people to understand that he is the strong leader that will deliver something. But he If we take him seriously, then we have to really seriously consider that he is preparing Britain for a no-deal Brexit at the end of this year and uh, law is piling up in Dover. uh, Because if he says that he does not want to follow any EU rules, then he will not have a trade deal with zero quotas and zero tariffs uh, by the end of this year. And that means that business will have to abruptly get used to the fact that you cannot just drive in and out with your lawyers as uh, everyone's doing so far. And that will be a serious disruption. And then he can sort of present um, to his population that this is another blitz from from the continent, uh, an attack on this country, because uh, he has always said he wants a deal, but of course nobody was listening to him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that could be a real problem then.
0: This is a difficult moment for, for, for everybody concerned, isn't it? Given the fact that um, we have... The, you know, Brexit is done, so we're off. We're, and now we have, you know, it is, it is happening and we have to come up with some sort of future relationship written down on paper. But the way that the Brexit deal was sold to those who are voting in it um, was that the United Kingdom wouldn't follow leads on uh, standards equivalences, environmental protections, human rights, this kind of stuff. I think a lot of people thought that when you mean Brexit, you mean you completely leave the European Union and you don't follow any of the rules anymore. Now, the EU's not going to be able to stomach that
2: at all, surely. Well, I think maybe one or two people thought that, but, you know, only because they hadn't read the small print. And if you go back... I think that might have been a common problem for the last three and a half years. It may well be, particularly when it comes to trade, about which very few people understand very much. Um, If you actually look at what Boris Johnson has said over the years about leaving the European Union, um, I I do keep retweeting just to annoy um, the many, many instances in which he argued first staying within the single market because he wanted Britain to be able to trade freely. So... The, the, the difficulty is that, of course, he's changed his position repeatedly, and that if you if you assume that Brexit was premised on a set of magical thinking, uh, and that included uh, we can be just as well off outside, or even better off outside the European Union as we were inside it, and that the, there are so many opportunities from which we were excluded by virtue of membership of the European Union, two fallacies that are simply can't be delivered in practice but if you if your political position is premised on that then you have very little option but to go on peddling nonsense and and just hoping in the end that if you cycle hard enough it'll all be all right i don't think it will be so and i'm i'm pretty worried about this as the united kingdom pedals and pedals and pedals um, i
0: wonder whether we are following a pretty well worn path when it comes to the negotiation process not just between the United Kingdom and the European Union, but most big negotiation processes, which means that which generally starts with two sides at absolute opposite ends of the scale, and then gradually they creep towards each other and they come to a compromise at the eleventh hour. This happens all the time. Are we looking at the a similar situation here, Tessa, or are we, given the ferocious nature of Boris Johnson's rhetoric? Moving into the sort of traditional negotiation playbook, but with an avid added s- sprinkling of the style of Donald Trump.
3: Well, first of all, Boris Johnson is a populist and he's sort of taking full advantage of his talents as a, as a, as a speaker to make people laugh about the European Union rules and all these kind of things where he should really sort of focus now on getting this period done, because this will be the much more complicated one than the first one. And the first one already took three years. And this is also because it's not like the European Union negotiating with Australia or with Canada over a trade deal where two sort of independent uh, trade blocs or nations talk to each other. The UK just exited the U- European Union after 47 years of very, very close um uh, cooperation and is now a third country, which the U- the UK is just simply not used to. I mean, you know, Brits were sitting in Brussels at the table and they had a very, very important role to play there. And they are out of this now. So this completely changes the, the uh, parameters of how to talk to each other. And I think we will see in the next month that it will be much better for everyone to try to be reasonable if people have the interest to get something done. If Boris Johnson does not change his behavior, he will run into trouble in June. And it was interesting for me to see, I was now in Berlin and Vienna on the 31st in talks with EU officials and and, uh, national politicians, and they are convinced that he will not keep his promise not to extend the transition period because they just say it is absolutely impossible to to just get a deal done in these six months and then ratify it within uh, the fall and then exit with something
0: well let's have a quick look at um you're from austria aren't you tessa and the austrians have done something rather um delicious in terms of the way that they're playing with this so there was a stamp that the austrians had decided would be issued to commemorate the departure of the united kingdom from the european union last march that was the original goodbye date um I don't know how this has happened, but a new stamp has been issued to commemorate the real departure date, which was the 31st of January 2020. But instead of replacing the date, the Austrian, I think it's the Österreichische Post, has decided to cross out the original date and then replace it. It's a bit, forgive me, but it's a little cheap,
3: isn't it? Well, it is indeed cheap or cheap per because they had one hundred and forty thousand stamps printed in spring, <laughs> and they were sitting on these one hundred and forty thousand stamps. So they just used a sort of a method to to uh, change the date. But as you say, I would say it's a little bit cheap and it's a little bit cheeky, and both of these. Um, characteristics are quite Austrians. Uh, Well I'm I'm going to stick with you on this one because
0: (laughs) the Austrians don't have always the warmest relationship with the European Union do they? I mean I think a good chunk of Austrians would be quite happy to send it packing.
3: Well actually since uh, we all watched uh, Britain uh, and its troubles (laughs) to leave the European Union the um, support for for the, yeah, exit is finished. It's now at 8% of the population that would like to uh, leave the European Union. It's the highest pro-European feeling we've ever had. And that's due to you.
2: So thank you very much. But I'm curious as to why Austria wanted to issue a commemorative stamp in the first place.
3: (laughs) Well, they do a lot of commemorative stamps. So we had just now at the beginning of January 25 years of EU membership ourselves. So we are sort of like half of the time. So they did that. And so but they do they have quite an active uh, uh, artistic designer sitting there apparently. And they do quite funny and and cheerful uh, designs often. And so I think this one was a little bit as an expression of the sadness that the continent feels, but also making, you know, a little well, the, bit fun of There Britain. is that
0: typical German expression of Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you'd be quite happy to explain to us. Not least because the last time the United Kingdom and the European Union had any sort of public Austria-related Brexit negotiations within was in Salzburg, which was a couple of years ago, Theresa May turns up, and it is a total disaster. She is humiliated. Are the Austrians enjoying this? I mean, you say they're pro-Europe now, but
3: is, there, actually, a little, is there a
0: glimmer in their eye?
3: I don't think that the Austrians feel um, competition, for example, with uh, Britain. There's a rather good relationship between the Austrians and Britain. Uh, and, and and the United Kingdom in general. You know, it's all about tourism both ways. There's no, not a lot of contentious um, issues. Um, you know, if it's about the Nazis, it's about Germany more than Austria. On the other hand, if it's about competition, who is the bigger nation? Austria doesn't play in this league. So I think there's... I wouldn't necessarily say that also at the summit in Salzburg that it was an intentional humiliation of Theresa May and certainly I think not from that government that was in place. Uh, I think this was more due to a general sort of exhaustion with this Brexit process that just didn't seem to get done ever. Tessa Shishkiewicz and Isabel Hilton. Thank you very much indeed for
0: joining us on Monocle 24. In a moment, we profile one of the best-known names to become the Democratic nominee for president. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. Stay tuned. <laughs> And if you've just joined us, this is Monocle's Houseview. Good to have you with us. Here on Monocle 24, we've been profiling Democratic presidential candidates. Among the crowded field of those racing to become the Democratic nominee for president, Bernie Sanders is, historically speaking, the most unexpected of frontrunners. Monocle's Andrew Muller explains.
1: If Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont were to be sworn in as President of the United States next January, he would be older arriving in the White House than Ronald Reagan was when he left it. Sanders, like Joe Biden, has sought the Democratic nomination before and fallen short. However, challenging Hillary Clinton in 2016, Sanders proved startlingly popular with primary voters a fraction of his age. But is the burn still felt? Here's Ryan Williams, Executive Vice President of Targeted Victory and former spokesman for the 2012 presidential campaign of Mitt Romney. Let's look first of all at such strengths as Senator Sanders has. From where you're sitting, what is the secret of his appeal, which is considerable among a certain cohort?
5: The secret of Bernie Sanders' appeal is that he is a candidate of radical change. He is the most liberal candidate to run in the last 50 years on the Democratic side and have a serious chance at winning the nomination. He is a self-professed socialist and that appeals to the base of the Democratic Party, which is tired of people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, who are more traditional mainstream Democrats who have come up through the ranks. He's anti-establishment, he's radically liberal, and he provides for many Democratic activists the complete opposite of Donald Trump. Uh, My job today,
1: is to put together a team that can
5: defeat the most dangerous president uh, in the history of the United States of America. Sanders' image is very important for his, his, not just his campaign, but his movement. He comes across as disheveled, cranky, flinty Northeasterner, but it provides authenticity that his base loves. He's not the traditional, polished, coiffed politician. He's somebody who espouses radical views, who speaks off the cuff, who clearly isn't refined and micromanaged and prepped for TV. He is what he is. And I think his base voters and supporters really appreciate that, and it draws them to his personality, which makes their support uh, even more fervent than the support you'd see for a normal political candidate. His age is somewhat of an issue, but it's, it's a difficult issue to bring up when Trump, his potential opponent, is also in his 70s. And I suspect that if Sanders does win the nomination, he'll respond to that concern appropriately by appointing a much younger, maybe a a Pete Buttigieg or someone of that generation running mate to balance out the issue. I think it is somewhat of an issue when you pick your president, you obviously want somebody who's gonna be fit for four to eight years. There are questions raised at a certain age, but I don't think his core supporters particularly care about that, but it is an issue that I think people beyond just his base may weigh as they look at him if he were to secure the nomination and run in a general election. He is vulnerable given his positions in a general election. He is a far left candidate. For years, Republicans have called Democrats socialists. They've rejected that word, but he is a self-professed socialist, so he's kind of owning it. But you can already see the campaign ads now. Bernie Sanders with the Soviet hammer and sickle next to him. Of course, he he honeymooned in the Soviet Union, which he brought up again and again and again in the 1980s. I think it will harm him with swing voters. It does give Trump an opening to say, This is a radical candidate. This is somebody who wants to come in and and kill jobs and have a government takeover of everything. And it's, it's a credible attack with someone like Sanders because he has said he's a socialist. So what democratic socialism means to me
1: is having in a civilized society the understanding that we can make sure that all of our people live in security and in dignity.
5: Many people had thought that a socialist could never win a national election in the United States. These are the same people that never thought Donald Trump could win a general election in the United States. I think anything is possible now. Politics has become so much more polarized in this country over the last 10 to 20 years that you're going to see parties put up candidates again and again with extremist views. So Trump certainly was a different type of Republican than we had seen in the past and had very extreme views on immigration and other issues but the base like that, and the base picks the, who the nominee is. It's the same thing on the Democratic side. And the United States is a country with two systems. We don't have a parliamentary government system where if you don't like one part or the other, there's a credible third party that might get some seats that goes to a coalition government. It's one or the other. And you basically are comparing two personalities at the end of the day in a presidential election. And if one is unpopular as Trump is, there's an opening for even a socialist like Sanders to win the election. So you can't write them off. That being said, I do think socialism is very unpopular in the United States and his self-professed views of socialism will hinder his campaign in a general election.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yolene Goffin and Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20:00, a brand new edition of Monocle Culture, and Monocle's house view is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 18:00 London time. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.